Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you on another Friday evening where we are set to explore another topic by way of musing and responding to any question you have. And you did have a question, a question that came from this past month on uh, G.K. Chesterton. Your question out from my musing on G.K. Chesterton was, is G.K. Chesterton Catholic? Uh, And the short answer to that is yes. He converted from high church Anglicanism. Uh, Now, in preparation for this evening, I was reading his work from 12 Modern Apostles and their Creeds, and I thought to get our evening going, I would share with you some of his own words from that book, and then I will get into my principal musing for this evening. Okay, so this is G.K. Chesterton. The difficulty of explaining why I am a Catholic is that there are 10,000 reasons all amounting to one reason, that Catholicism is true. I could fill all my space with separate sentences, each beginning with the words, it is the only thing that, dot, dot, dot. As, for instance, it is the only thing that really prevents a sin from being a secret. It is the only thing in which the superior cannot be superior, in the sense of what is supercilious. It is the only thing that frees a man from the degrading slavery of being a child of his age. It is the only thing that talks as if it were the truth, as if it were a real messenger refusing to tamper with a real message. It is the only type of Christianity that really contains every type of man, even the respectable man. It is the only large attempt to change the world from the inside, working through wills and not laws, and so on. He goes on, or I might treat the matter personally and describe my own conversion, but I happen to have a strong feeling that this method makes the business look much smaller than it really is. Numbers of much better men have been sincerely converted from much worse religions. I would much prefer to attempt to say here of the Catholic Church precisely the things that cannot be said even of its very respectable rivals. In short, I would say chiefly of the Catholic Church that it is Catholic. Uh, And here I think, my friends, I believe Chesterton means universal in in that the word itself literally translates as uh, universal. He goes on, I would rather try to suggest that It is not only larger than me, but larger than anything in the world, that it is indeed larger than the world itself. But since in this short space I can only take a section, I will consider it in its capacity of a guardian of the truth. The other day, a well-known writer, otherwise quite well-informed, said that the Catholic Church is always the enemy of new ideas. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) It probably did not occur to him that his own remark was not exactly in the nature of a new idea. It is one of the notions that Catholics have to be continually refuting 
because it is such a very old idea. Yeah, pay close attention to what Chesterton is saying here. Indeed, those who complain that Catholicism cannot say anything new seldom think it necessary to say anything new about Catholicism. As a matter of fact, a real study of history will show it to be curiously contrary to the fact, in so far as the ideas really are ideas, and in so far as any such ideas can be new. Catholics have continually suffered through supporting them when they were really new, when they were much too new to find any support. The Catholic was not only first in the field, but alone in the field, and there was as yet nobody to understand what he had found there. Thus, for instance, and here he gives an example or two, there are passages in Pope Leo's encyclical on labor, also known as uh, Rerum Novarum, uh, released in 1891, which are only now beginning to be used as hints for social movements much newer than socialism. And when uh, Mr. Belloc, one of the great theologians, wrote about the servile state, he advanced an economic theory so original that hardly anybody has yet to realize what it is. A few centuries hence, other people will probably repeat it and repeat it wrong. And then, if Catholics object, the protest will be easily explained by the well-known fact that Catholics never care for new ideas. Nevertheless, Chesterton continues, the man who made that remark about Catholics meant something, and it is only fair to him to understand it rather more clearly than he stated it. What he meant was that in the modern world, the Catholic Church is in fact the enemy of many influential fashions most of which still claim to be new, though many of them are beginning to be a little stale. In other words, my friends, in so far as he meant that the church often attacks what the world at any given moment supports, he was perfectly right. You see what Chesterton is doing here, saying here? The church does often set herself against the fashion of this world that passes away, and she has experience enough to know how very rapidly it does pass away. But as Chesterton says here, to understand exactly what is involved, it is necessary to take a rather larger view and consider the ultimate nature of the ideas in question, to consider, so to speak, the idea of the idea. Chesterton concludes here, Nine out of ten of what we call new ideas are simply old mistakes. The Catholic Church has for one of her chief duties that of preventing people from making those old mistakes, from making them over and over again forever, as people always do if they are left to themselves. The truth about the Catholic attitude towards heresy, for example, or as some would say, towards liberty, can best be expressed, perhaps, by the metaphor of a map. I love this metaphor. The Catholic Church carries a sort of map of the mind which looks like the map of a maze, but which is in fact a guide to the maze, he says. It has been compiled from knowledge which even considered as human knowledge is quite without any human parallel. There is no other case of one continuous intelligent institution that has been thinking about thinking for 2,000 years. Its experience naturally covers nearly all experiences 
and especially nearly all heirs. The result is a map in which all the blind alleys and bad roads are clearly marked, all the ways that have been shown to be worthless by the best of all evidence, the evidence of those who have gone down them. (laughs) All right, all that being said, after responding to that very important question and uh, walking down that road, we now transition to our principal musing for this evening. This week, I was made to reflect upon how we think about being a fan. We are on the heels of another Super Bowl, and in watching the Super Bowl, we have all been reminded of the wild and weird world that is rooting for a specific team. And so it is I put before you a question. Is there a professional franchise you follow closely? If we can personalize this question, this topic, huh? Maybe if you don't follow a professional team, you hail from a college with intercollegiate athletics and you wear your school colors with pride on game day. In one way or another, in some shape or form, the majority of us, I think, are a fan of some team. So what does it mean to be called a fan? Well, the word fan is short for fanatic. So if you root for the Yankees or Patriots, the Crimson Tide or Fighting Irish, you are fanatical about the Yankees or Patriots, the Crimson Tide or Fighting Irish. When I first considered the meaning of fan in its given context, that I was fanatical about the team I root for, honestly, I didn't like it. It made me uncomfortable. But I asked myself the question, why was I uncomfortable? Initially, I suppose it was just my intuition. And then I went to my Latin dictionary and discovered why my intuition served me well. The word fanatic comes from the Latin fanaticus, which translates as literally mad, enthusiastic, inspired by a god. I realized that my team became a god, replacing the one true god, especially on Sundays. Interestingly, most dictionaries define a fanatic as an insane person. If you are not sure this definition applies to you, have someone record you while you are rooting for your favorite team. If you're anything like me, after you are done laughing at yourself, you may realize how silly, or dare I say, how insane your fandom has become. Now, the next question I want to put before you is this. What does what we are talking about now have to do with our faith in Jesus Christ? Our treatment of fanaticism have to do with our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what increases our fanaticism? Growing up, I used to spend a great deal of time getting to know the players I would root for. For better or worse, I could probably still tell you the lifetime stats of all the players who played for the Oakland Athletics from the 1980s. I could tell you birth dates and and the place of most Oakland A's players, when they were drafted, and and everything else that you might find on the back of a baseball card. My fandom went so far as to study the actual tendencies of the players, their strengths and weaknesses in the field and and at the plate. It, It was pretty ridiculous, actually. Looking back, I could see how the more time I studied the details of the players I followed, the louder my cheers for them became. In other words, My fanaticism increased to the degree I got to know the particulars of the players I was rooting for. Brothers and sisters, translate these points to our faith journey and 
you have your link between fanaticism and our faith in Jesus Christ. Essentially, the more time we feverishly get to know Jesus Christ and his teachings, the more our fanaticism for Jesus Christ and his teachings will expand. What you feed grows, right? Now, what is a practical way to increase this fanaticism for Jesus? Worship. Here we should revisit the Latin word fanaticus. The root to fanaticus is fanum, which means pertaining to a temple, shrine, or consecrated place. How about that? Being a fanatic for Jesus Christ is to uh, worship him in his holy temple, literally. It should come to no surprise that the saints and angels in the book of Revelation erupt like that of a fanatic in praise and worship. In point of fact, the only time you see the word Alleluia in the New Testament is when the great multitude of saints and angels are worshiping the one true God with incense and smoke, crying out. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So what is my point here? Fanaticism and worship belong together. What's more, the letter to the Hebrews tells us that the cloud of witnesses who are worshiping God are also cheering us on, urging us to fight the good fight and, and meet Jesus Christ who waits for us at the finish line. My dear friends, to worship God is to worship in communion with the saints. How awesome is that? The team you might be rooting for is also rooting for you. What does all of this mean? Do we stop rooting for our favorite teams? Not necessarily. But what we need to remember is that there is one team above, above every other team, the team of Jesus Christ and everyone who is created in his image and likeness. And that team should always take precedence, lest we be called uh, insane. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.